Good morning. If you happen to see any young folks, uh, youth-type folks walking around in the hall up there, grab them and drag them in here. It's really, uh, it's a wonderful, beautiful morning. It's really nice to have um, the McChesneys and the Dodges here among us at the same time that the Grams are back with us. Uh, it's just a beautiful day on many, in many fronts. This is the second message on the topic in Proverbs of sexual purity. There aren't many topics more important. Last week in our first look at this theme, we picked up on Solomon's metaphor in Proverbs 7.22, in which he likens a person who caves into sexual temptation to an ox who is suddenly headed to slaughter. Solomon said that the end of that path is Sheol, the chambers of death. I showed you last week a couple of photos of a modern chute apparatus through which cattle are moved from the herds to the slaughterhouse. We noted that there are very calculated reasons that the chute is constructed as it is. The high walls of these narrow chutes obstruct the cattle's view of anything except other cattle and of the handlers who are ushering them through this process to slaughter. The cows are accustomed to human handlers, and they're certainly used to being around lots of other cows, so they don't detect any threat in this situation until they get to the end of the chute. In fact, By the time a cow gets to this particular day, the last day of its life, it's been through this kind of chute many times for things that were fairly benign, like inoculations and ear tags and and just to be moved from by truck from one place to another. So they come to this next chute and they think, oh, this is no big deal. I'll end up back where I was. It'll be okay. Even the curves in the chute are designed to keep the cattle from seeing the end point until they're almost there. The narrow single-file chute forces them to keep their eyes forward, and it gives them only one direction to go, and that's forward. Once they're in the chute, they are given no options. Now, this is a very useful picture of how enticement to sexual sin works. We are surrounded by influences that compel us to be very, very focused about our attention. (laughs) But they compel us to place our attention on a lie on a deception, a false reality. The world does not give us honest information about what's actually going on. It tries instead very hard to obstruct our view of what's real and of what's ahead so that we don't get distracted from the lie. And it tries very hard to convince us that there's only one path that makes any sense, and that's the course of sinful self-indulgence. In 1 Peter 4, Peter says that those who engage in sensuality and lust are surprised when they come across Christians who don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation. And so they malign those Christians. The word is literally they blaspheme them, they slander them. And they shame them in an effort to pull them into that same self-absorbed practice with which they are so enamored. To the world, there's only one reasonable path that makes life worth living. But it happens to be the path to the slaughterhouse. You see, at the heart of sin 
at the heart of every temptation to sin is the suppression of the truth that Paul talked about in Romans 1. Truth that we know only because God has revealed it to us. There's no other place to find it. Satan loves it when he manages to blind a believer to reality as God defines it. But God does not deal with us as the world does or as Satan does. See, God doesn't put blinders on us when He saves us. He doesn't force us to put our focus on Him. He calls us and graciously commands us to do so, to keep our eyes and our hearts and our actions steadfastly fixed upon the author and perfecter of faith. Because otherwise we are not of use to Him and we will not know blessing from Him. Our calling is not to be insulated from the world. Our call is to be in the world as instruments of God, but as Jesus made it very clear in His high priestly prayer the night before He was crucified, we are called not to be of the world. Last week we talked a lot about how we get into that shoot. <laughs> we, we talked about uh, disregard for life-saving wisdom. We talked about some entry points in our culture that entice us, that things that are very powerful enticements to go into that chute. Our focus this morning is on the other side of that, and that is how we stay out of the chute. And God has some really good news for us. Proverbs gives us God's answer to that question, how do you stay out of the chute? Uh, in very straightforward terms. And his answer can be captured in one word. And that word is vigilance. The Oxford Dictionary defines vigilance as the action or state of keeping careful watch for possible danger or difficulties. That's, that's really a good definition from a biblical perspective. It tells us, what we must do to steer clear of destructive sins, particularly sexual sins. God calls us to diligently choose to keep our eyes and our feet in the right place so that we stay out of that uh, slaughterhouse chute and we stay on the path that leads to life and blessing and, of course, to usefulness for our God. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. If you take the first half of that verse and you look at it in the Hebrew, it's pretty interesting. It says, More than all guarding, guard your heart. More than all other guarding that you do, guard your heart. Solomon is telling his son that the single most important act, careful watchfulness, of urgent vigilance that he will ever put into practice is vigilance over his own heart. If there's one thing that's crystal clear from Proverbs about how we avoid the pitfalls of foolishness and sin, it's that you cannot do it passively. We have to be purposeful, not passive. The only way to stay out of the chute is to be very, very intentional when it comes to thinking about and acting upon the things that God has declared to be true. And we have to be intentional at all times. We never get to drop our guard. 
These cows don't have a clue what's at the other end of that chute. As we said last week, even if you tried to explain it to them, they wouldn't understand. (laughs) But you do. Because God is not silent. He doesn't leave us to our own devices to figure out what's really going on. As we've seen in our first few studies in the book of Proverbs, God tells us in no uncertain terms how to recognize the difference between wisdom that leads to blessing in life and foolishness that leads to cursing and death. If you set aside that knowledge because you consider it too much trouble to constantly think about it and act upon it, and you just carry on as if God had not given you that knowledge, then you're just going to follow your nose right into the slaughterhouse chute. See, the enemy, the enemy is never passive. In, in a war, let's say one party is passive and accommodating and the other party is relentlessly aggressive. Which one's going to win? Just ask France. They can tell you the answer to that question. Again, you are surrounded by influences that are trying very earnestly to pull you into the entrance to that chute. And Satan has plenty of handlers who appear to be nice and harmless and benign, but they are very, very skilled at moving you in the direction that He would like you to go. So you cannot be passive. In short, if you coast, you're toast. That one simple principle would transform the lives of many believers if they would just lay hold of it. We're not here to coast through life until we get to heaven, just rolling with whatever happens to us. We're not here to chill. We're not here to relax. We're here to be useful to the One who redeemed us and gave us real life. And you know what? That life of usefulness to God is nothing at all like the boring life that the world makes it out to be. The Christian life is a whole lot more interesting and a whole lot more exciting and a whole lot more enjoyable when we take a vigilant approach to it. Think of one sport. Think of any athletic endeavor. Think of any competition. Think of any business effort. Think of any academic effort that isn't better when diligence is applied to it. The Apostle Paul, by the way, was a very disciplined and vigilant guy. Did he have a boring life? If you think he did, go read Acts again. <laughs> if anyone ever made a movie about, I mean, really made a movie about Paul's life, it would be, it'd be very interesting. We can't coast. We have to be vigilant, and that means we have to be constantly watchful, purposeful, and diligent. But vigilant about what? What specifically are we called by God to do that demands this intensity of focus all the time? Well, I'm going to go back again to the passage that we read at the beginning. And let's look just at the verbs. Give attention to. Incline your ear to. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in your midst. Watch over your heart. Put away from you the deceitful mouth. Put devious lips far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed. Watch the path of your feet. Do not turn this way, but turn this way. As Solomon presents it, 
it strikes me that there are four critical things that we must do that constitute godly vigilance. Know, understand, keep, and act. We're called to know what God has to say about wisdom and foolishness, righteousness and sin. Solomon says to his son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. We're called to become very familiar with that which God declares to be true and what he requires of us on the basis of that truth. And that, of course, means that you must diligently and consistently be in God's word because that's the only place that we find the truth that God has revealed. You're not going to get it anywhere else. Even your fellow believers should never be treated as an authoritative source of truth. That doesn't mean God doesn't use them to point you to the truth, to remind you of the truth, but you always go back here to test everything, including what I say, what any other man says, any other person says to you. There's only one authoritative source to know what's true, and that's what God has told us. Secondly, we're called to understand how God says that things work. At the beginning of the same chapter, chapter 4, Solomon says in verse 1, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. That you may gain understanding. The word understanding is closely related to the word for wisdom. They're used synonymously often, but Understanding focuses more on the idea of discernment, especially discernment of consequences. The ability to differentiate between that which is wise and that which is foolish, particularly the consequences of one of those compared with the other. We saw last week that Solomon went to great lengths to warn his son about the fatal consequences of taking lightly the temptation to sexual immorality. Here in chapter 4, He talks about the positive consequences of that vigilance. He tells his sons that his words to him are life to those who find them, their health to their whole body. God calls us to think hard about the consequences that he presents to us of forgetting or disregarding God's truth in these matters. The consequences to other people, to us, And above all, to our relationship with God. And he also calls us to think about the consequences in all of those areas. The marvelous, positive consequences when we align ourselves with the truth. Of being wise instead of foolish. Being very clear about the distinction between those two paths and results. That's understanding. That's biblical understanding. The third thing, we're to to know what God has to say about truth, what's true. We're to understand and discern the differences between the two paths that that are presented, truth and falsehood. And we're to keep the knowledge and understanding that he has given to us always in front of us. Solomon says to his son, keep, guard my words in the midst of your heart. And he says in verse 23, more than all guarding, guard your heart. We're to keep watch over these things so that we do not wander from God's precious truths. Uh, That will not happen unless we're very purposeful about it. We're to know, understand, keep, and finally we're to act. 
This isn't about just knowing something and being happy that you know it. It's about not turning your feet in this direction and instead turning your feet in this direction, in the direction of the things that correspond with reality as God makes it known. Order your choices and decisions based on God's truth. If your feet start to wander, (laughs) turn back. It's important to note that there is always both a positive and a negative aspect to acting in keeping with God's calling. We have to avoid that which is not from God, and we have to pursue that which is, and we have to do both at the same time. It's never just one or the other. And that brings up another critically important tip from Scripture about what it means to live the life of vigilance that God is presenting to us here, and that is don't hang out at the entrance to the chute. In Proverbs 5, verses 7 and 8, Solomon says, Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. And then he says, Keep your way far from her, from the forbidden woman, and do not go near the door of her house. And then he explains what happens if you disregard that. Which of these cows is going to be around longer? Those those gals way up there are these that are gathered right by the entrance to the collecting pen for the chute. I'm certainly not alone in noting here that there is a very troubling pattern among the current generation of teenage and young adult Christians. And that pattern is that far too many of them think that they can pursue godliness without avoiding ungodliness. They think they can saturate their eyes and ears and minds with falsehood, with the things that violate the character of God, and yet still somehow manage to make decisions and choices that are in keeping with the character of God. But guys, it does not work that way. It has never worked that way, and is not going to start working that way just because we now have a generation who wants to believe that they have the luxury of flirting with the things of this world. I know not all young people fit into that description, praise God, but far too many do. James 4.4 says in no uncertain terms that friendship with this world is hostility toward God. 1 John... I'll get there in a second. 1 John says... Chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful, boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. What about the people you hang out with? 1 Corinthians 15 says that friendship with the worldly, not just the world, but the worldly, that is bad company, corrupts good morals. So if you're on the right path and you spend all your time hanging out with people that are on the wrong path, guess who gets messed up? Paul says, do not be deceived. That's how it works. Bad company corrupts good morals. 
You cannot pursue God while surrounding yourself with people and things and words and images that violate the character of God. Now some of you are going to say, but wait, if Jesus hadn't associated with sinful, worldly people, nobody would have gotten saved. Of course, I agree with that wholeheartedly, but it completely misses the point. When you can be as purposeful as Jesus was about treating every relationship as an opportunity to seek and save the lost, maybe then you can drop your guard just a little. You and I are too prone to sin to set aside these forceful warnings that God has given to us. He gave them to us for a reason. We cannot hang around the entrance to the slaughterhouse chute and expect to be unharmed. I don't, I'll get back to that one. Proverbs 6. I don't have a slide, says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. You can't avoid the consequence of disregarding these things. God commands us in 1 Corinthians 6 to flee immorality. He doesn't say flirt with it. He says flee from it. Get as far away from it as you can get. You should think of the entrance to the slaughterhouse chute as a tractor beam. I love that. I love that picture because it has both a cow and a pun. Think of the slaughterhouse chute as a tractor beam that is irresistibly pulls everything around it into it. There's a t-shirt version too, if you want. Proverbs 5, 7, and 8. We just saw this. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house. Proverbs 7, verses 24 and 25. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me. Does it sound familiar? And pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside through her ways and do not stray into her paths. Stay far enough away that you're not going to accidentally get in the way of that enticement. Is that what we're doing daily? Vigilantly, diligently, is that what we're doing? These are not guidelines or suggestions. These are commands. Sexual purity does not happen on our terms. It happens on God's terms. And God's terms demand that we forsake the things of this world in order, in order that we may be conformed to Christ. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. You have to turn away from the first in order to turn to the second. And that's harder to do than ever, right? <laughs> it requires more resolve and creativity than ever, ever because the, the, the ways that we are enticed are, are just off the charts now. They're everywhere. This affects what movies and TV shows you watch what video games you play, what websites you check out, what YouTubes you look at, what music you listen to, and for the handful of youth who still read, it affects what books you read. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be insulting. It's just really uh, reading is becoming a thing of the past. And don't be deceived. It affects big time whom you choose to be your close friends. If you insist that it doesn't, your argument is not with me, it's with God. Now, I'm not going to tell you where to draw all those lines because I do a lousy impersonation of the Holy Spirit 
but you have to draw them for yourself. Vigilance demands it. You have to really think about these things. If you don't, you're not going to be ready when the temptation comes. You need a plan of action before it comes. Think and pray in advance about how you'll respond when sexual temptation rears its ugly head. And if you don't, and if you think that you, uh, that you already have such a great handle on this stuff that you don't have to worry about it, then I'd challenge you to look at 1 Corinthians 10-12, which says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. None of us is so far along in our spiritual walk that we can drop the call to vigilance. None of us. Now, some of you may be thinking at this point that all this sounds uh, really daunting and dreadfully serious. (laughs) You may be thinking that it sounds like the Christian life is too burdensome to actually be doable. And that brings us to the second indispensable protection that keeps us out of the chute is the one that I consider most marvelous. The failure to get this right is why so many well-intentioned believers make themselves needlessly vulnerable to sexual sin. See, watching over your heart with all diligence is not merely the careful avoidance of sexual temptation. It is the diligent pursuit of far better things. It's a far better affection. James 4, verse 7 says, Resist the devil and he, he will flee from you. Okay, that's the avoidance part. In the very next breath, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a far better affection than the one you're leaving behind. If the only defense you have in your suit of armor to protect you against sexual sin is your own steadfast resistance of temptation, you're going to fail. You can't stop doing something and be left with nothing but a vacuum because then you're just going to go right back to what you were doing. Fortunately, that's not all God gave you. The prohibition, the don't, is not all God gave you. Indeed, it's not even the most important thing that he gave you. You've heard me talk before about Thomas Chalmers' classic little book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive means that it pushes something out so that something may replace it. The theme in that book is one that will stay with me for the rest of my life because I believe it's central to what the Bible presents to us about how sanctification actually works. The essential thesis of the book is that you will never succeed in putting off the things that are ungodly if you don't have something far better with which to replace them. And that something far better is Christ himself. The Christian life is not essentially about what we forsake. It is essentially about whom we embrace. It's about a marvelous relationship with the living God that transcends everything that we have to set aside to lay hold of that relationship. And when we do lay hold of it, (laughs) we realize that the sacrifice of those other things is no sacrifice at all. In Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. The Christian life is an eminently positive and joyful proposition, not a burdensome proposition. 
Look once again at the passage that we read at the beginning. And notice how positive the emphasis is. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to their whole body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. (laughs) Put away from you a deceitful mouth. Put devious lips far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed in front of you, straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Rock solid. You won't be pushed around. In Proverbs 5, after telling his son the consequences that he'll face if he does not hear and heed his father's words, Solomon turns to the positive. Look at the beautiful, exalted words that he uses to describe godly intimacy between a man and his wife. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated, be intoxicated always with her love. <laughs> See, God blesses marriage and sexual intimacy when we honor Him as the one who designed it and gave it to us and when we enjoy it in the gracious context for which it was created. It's a beautiful gift. There's nothing else like it in human experience. But if we let ourselves forget that God gave it to us as a powerful physical reminder of the love that Jesus Christ has for His people, His church, then we lose sight of the of the better affection. Sexual purity before marriage and sexual fidelity in marriage are not merely about the superiority of godly affection toward your spouse. They're about the superiority of godly affection toward God. In Psalm 119, the writer says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. And look at, the, look at the essential motivation here. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. The priority is on that vertical relationship. A relationship to God himself. Look one more time at Paul's Words in 1 Corinthians 6, the passage in which he calls us to flee immorality. Look at the heart of that appeal. This is amazing to me. He says, yet the body is not for immorality. The body is for the Lord. For the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, Jesus Christ, but will also raise us up through his power. See, God has plans for this body. It belongs to Him. He redeemed it and He's going to perfect it and He's going to make it to stand spotless in His presence forever. That's what this body is for. He says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. 
Do you not know that the one who joins himself to harlot is one body with her? For he says, the two will become one flesh. And then it's amazing what he does with that concept. The two will become one flesh. In the very next verse he says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. The one flesh relationship on earth is a metaphor for the reality, the transcendent, superior, better affection of our union with God Himself. Of being drawn into love and unity and fellowship that the Trinity has known from eternity past. That's what marriage is supposed to show to us. It's supposed to show us where we're headed. It's supposed to show us what our body is for. How could we want to mess that up? Do you want the commitment to sexual purity to become so ingrained in you, so powerful in you, so attractive to you, that it overwhelms the temptation to self-indulgence? Then set your heart on that far better affection. And what you leave behind will be of no importance to you. Because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. The one who loved us and gave himself up for us so that he might sanctify us. So that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But, but that she would be holy and blameless. Ephesians 5 verses 25 to 27. Jesus said to his father the night before he died. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's life. That's life. The personal, intimate knowledge of God is life. And there is no other life. Everything else that looks like life is a sham. That's the affection that trumps all other affections. Now, in a group this size, some of you are no doubt thinking, what if I've already blown it? What if I'm already in the shoot? If you're already entrenched in a pattern of sexual self-indulgence, there's very good news for you. Because you don't have to stay there. You're called to get out of the darkness and back into the light and to do it now. It's a life and death proposition. When you figure out that you're on a path that's headed toward the slaughterhouse, do you stay there until you're dead? No. You get the heck off that path and back on the path of life. Now, I need to explain at this point that there's a flaw in the analogy that I've been using as the glue for these two messages on sexual purity. Think about a cow that's in that line of cattle headed toward the slaughterhouse, and he's in this chute that's one cow wide. It's too high for him to jump out. Now, let's say this particular cow is smarter than the average cow, and he realizes what's happening. He figures out he's in the wrong place and he desperately needs to get out. What can he do about it? Nothing. He can't go backwards. He can't go up. He can't go sideways. He can only go into the chute, into the slaughterhouse. Fortunately, that's where the analogy of the cattle chute fails to match up with your situation if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Because we're not cattle. We are sons of the Most High God. As a redeemed child of God, you are never, never stuck on the path of sin and death. 
In Romans 6, 5-7, it says, Paul says, For if we have become united with Him, with Christ, in the likeness of His death, and we have, if you're a believer, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He who has died is freed from sin. And then in verse 11, he says, Even so, reckon, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then because you have been identified with Him in His death and resurrection, sin no longer has any power over you. If you're a child of God and you're in the shoot, then thanks to the convicting work and liberating power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you can choose to get out of it right now, and that's exactly what you must do. Don't stay in it a minute longer. And do not, do not buy in to the lie from the pit that says you can't get out. I've talked to professing believers who insist that they struggle from what is popularly known as sexual addiction. They say they simply cannot stop engaging in sexual sin, even though they know it's repugnant to God and it's terribly destructive to them, themselves and to others. And that includes addiction to pornography. I know I risk being accused of oversimplification and gross insensitivity here, but honestly, I don't really care what I'm accused of. I care what God says is true. The Bible doesn't have one word to say about sexual addiction. I believe the whole cultural obsession with addiction is a dodge. It's a grand excuse to allow us to avoid accepting the truth about our accountability to what God says is true. Now let me explain a little bit before you decide I'm clueless. I am not saying there is no such thing as physical addiction or psychological addiction. I'm not saying that. I have no argument with the assertion that some people are more vulnerable to sexual sin than others or to alcohol abuse or to drug abuse. I don't even have a problem with the assertion that some people are more genetically prone to certain sins. But beloved, being prone to sin and sinning are two different things. I was not born to be faithful to one woman for life, but that's exactly what God requires of me. And it's far better... His call is far better than my natural inclination. What makes people actually commit sexual sin is the exact same thing that made Adam and Eve commit sin in the first place. They trusted a lie instead of humbly trusting in and obeying God's clearly revealed truth. God said to them, I've given you more, more to enjoy than you could ever get around to. Enjoy it! It's really, really good. Have a great time with it. But that one tree over there, don't mess with it. It'll kill you. How how complicated is that? But instead of buying into that very simple and straightforward declaration and warning from God, they listened to the serpent's lie that said, God's not being straight with you. Not not, not, Not only will eating of the fruit of that tree not kill you, it'll make your life better. Instead of just having personal knowledge of what's good, you'll get to have personal knowledge of what's evil. Won't that be great? Didn't that work out really well? Adam and Eve didn't sin because they were forbidden fruit addicts who couldn't control themselves. They sinned because they replaced the truth of God with a lie. 
My dad, whom I loved and respected, smoked three packs of cigarettes a day for decades. He tried repeatedly to quit. He became convinced that he was just too addicted to nicotine, nicotine, that he didn't have the willpower to quit. And then one hot summer day in Houston after he mowed the lawn, he collapsed with a heart attack. And he had to have a triple bypass. And you know what? He was instantly cured of his addiction to nicotine. He walked out of that hospital and never touched another cigarette for the rest of his life. Nicotine is certainly addictive. It pulls you into habit, and it's very effective at keeping you there until it kills you. But at the most fundamental level, my dad kept smoking for so long because he had not yet been sufficiently motivated not to smoke. He wasn't convinced yet that the consequences demanded a change in his behavior, and then all of a sudden, he was. I've either directly seen or heard credible testimonies of believers who have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, walked away from alcoholism, cocaine addiction, meth addiction, anorexia, uncontrolled anger, homosexual relationships, pornography addiction, and all manner of sexual self-indulgence. So I have a very serious problem with the notion that a child of God has to hang on to a label that's based on his previous behavior even if that behavior occurred yesterday. I believe that approach buys into a lie, a pernicious lie that says we are limited to who we used to be. Beloved, our God is a God of renewal and restoration. Do you believe that? He makes things new. He makes us new every day. The true identity of every one of us who believes in Jesus Christ is that we are children of God. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. We are no longer defined by our sin. We have been freed from the power of sin. And so we lay aside the deeds of darkness and we put on the deeds of light. We walk in the light because we are children of light, Ephesians chapter 5. In Matthew West's song, Child of the One True King, he says, I am no longer defined by the wreckage behind. My name is Child of the One True King. I've been saved. I've been changed. I've been set free. You want a label? You want a name tag? That's the label that God has given to every one of us who believes in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We are sons and daughters of the One True King. And it means something. It's real. It's far more real than the wreckage behind. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, well, um, let me say this. God didn't save you at the cost of his own son's life. So you'd have to spend the rest of your life saying, hello, my name is Tom, I'm an alcoholic. Or I'm a sex addict, or I'm a pornography addict, or I'm a drug abuser. Instead, God says, 1 Corinthians 6.11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Ephesians 5, verse 8 says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You are now If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a child of the one true king. And God says, so act like one. There is nothing to stop you from walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, 1 John 4.4. Now there are many, many, believe me, (laughs) out there who will say, it's not really that simple, Tom. You're just adding insult to injury to people who are desperately hurting 
from enslavement to addictive behaviors if you present it as if it's that simple. If you say that being prone to sin and sinning are two different things. To those people I say, show me where God says it isn't that simple. You can't because it's not in here. I'll show you a hundred places where God says it is precisely that simple. Sin is convoluted and complex and ugly. Righteousness is dirt simple. We need to stop believing lies and we need to start believing God. If you've already been sucked into the chute of sexual sin that leads to the slaughterhouse or to any other syndrome of sin, there is nothing to keep you there if you belong to Jesus Christ. Those walls, they're just illusions that Satan put there to deceive you into thinking that you're still a slave to sin. Just turn and walk away from the chute by the power that God has already made to dwell within you. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and placed Him above every name that is named, every authority in heaven and on earth. That power dwells in you. Walk away from that chute and stay as far away from it as you can get from now on. Turn your eyes firmly onto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Never let them wander from Him. When you do, guess what? It plays out exactly as advertised. God's Word works because it is the truth. I have never had any faith in my own fortitude, in the strength of my own willpower. (laughs) Willpower. There's a ridiculous oxymoron. It should be willpowerlessness. I've certainly never had any faith in the strength of my own character. Not when I was young and not now. My faith is in the one who saved me and made me his child when all I deserved was hell. My faith is in the one who redeemed me, who indwells me, who empowers me to walk in a manner worthy of his wonderful and impossibly high calling. When I was a young man, I wanted to get this matter of sexual purity right after I trusted the Lord at age 16. But I had no illusions. (laughs) I knew how desperately weak I was. I struggled mightily with sexual temptation, just like every young man and woman struggles who cares about the things of God. So let me tell you what I did. I went to God in prayer often, and I said, Lord, in times of weakness... Protect me based on the prayers that I have offered up to you in times of strength. And he did. That's a prayer I highly recommend to you if you're young or old. And because God's truth and God's way works exactly as represented, I can say without any pride in myself that I have for 29 years enjoyed a marriage the likes of which you, if you're a young believer, would do well to desire for yourself. And that most certainly includes the beautiful gift of sexual intimacy in the blessed context for which God created it. When you do it God's way, you know what? (laughs) It never gets boring. It just gets better. There is no part of life that doesn't work the way God says it works. It works because it's true. It works because God never lies. The world will lie to you all day, every day. God never lies. I'm not. I'm, I'm a mess. My wife knows me well enough to know that that's true. But when we do things the way God calls us to do them, He magnifies the blessing. He takes, he takes even our crummy efforts and His Spirit empowers and enables them 
And He blesses. And He does amazing things in our relationships and in our marriages. It's all about being convinced that the only real wisdom for living well comes from Him and not from you. Loving Father, I pray that you would not let us turn away from these things. This is too important, Lord. This is an opportunity that you have handed to us to be light in the darkness, to be radically, radically different from this world in which we live. Make us shine, Father. You've made us children of light. Make that light brilliant so that others are attracted and drawn to it. It's okay if they malign us. It's okay if they slander us. Because there are some out there, Lord, who are your elect. There are some out there in whose hearts you are working. And we want you to use us. We want you to use our lives to draw them in. And Lord, we want to enjoy in a manner that honors you all that you have given to us to enjoy. Thank you, Father, for your amazing grace in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.